clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's Uniquely Rockefeller Special Client Event. Today's event is the 33rd in our series and will be a conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO Greg Fleming, Avery Sheffield, co-founder and CIO of Vantage Rock at Rockefeller Capital Management, Dr. Ankur Crawford, EVP and Portfolio Manager at Alger, and Nick Davidoff, founder and CIO at Entrada Management. With that, as always, it's my pleasure to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you, Tom. I'm getting used to that interruction. Uh, I do think it was 34, but uh, could be 33. Uh, if we count uh, Derek a couple weeks ago, maybe 34. Good afternoon uh, to uh, clients of Rockefeller, our colleagues, other friends of Rockefeller. Uh, we've got a great uh, panel lined up today with uh, a lot of substance at a, at a particularly good time in the market. I don't know about good time, but a timely event, uh, given the volatility, the uncertainty, Fed, fiscal policy, China, Powell reappointment. There's a lot uh, that we're going to be able to talk uh, about today with our three panelists. So let me uh, provide a little bit more color on uh, who they are and, and why we have them here. Uh, and then we'll jump in. As Tom said, as always, we'll take questions through teams uh, from uh, our clients and, and, and colleagues, uh, and we will uh, keep it uh, crisp. Uh, to the hour uh, and wrap up uh, at two o'clock. So uh, first we have our own Avery Sheffield with us today. Uh, all the Rockefeller people are, are familiar with Avery, who as Tom said is uh, co-founder of Vantage Rock uh, and the CIO, Senior Portfolio Manager of that long short uh, fund. Uh, Avery is a lifetime investor as are all three of our panelists today. Uh, she is, uh, before she came to Rockefeller, uh, was a portfolio manager at MSD Capital, Michael Dell's uh, family office. She's uh, also managed money at Brandywine, and she started her career at uh, Sanford Bernstein, a great place, particularly in, in that time, uh, to learn the craft. Uh, I don't typically go to education, but I wanted to highlight Avery's because it is particularly impressive. She'll probably uh, complain that I did this later, but she um, has a BA in neuroscience from Pomona College, uh, summa cum laude, and an MBA from Wharton, where she graduated as a Palmer Scholar for uh, the Wharton crowd will know that's the top 5% of the class. So uh, bravo uh, on the educational front before you started your career, Avery. Yeah, we also have, as uh, Tom said, Dr. Anker Crawford with us. Anker is uh, also a, a lifetime investor, uh, most of it at uh, Alger, uh, where she spent 17 years. Uh, she's currently the um, an executive vice president there and the portfolio manager of Alger Capital Appreciation, Alger Focus Equity, and Alger Spectra, Strategy, Spectra Strategies. And those are really around growth and technology. And she's got some really interesting insights in the growth technology space today and a bifurcation that she sees starting to happen in that uh, marketplace. And clearly the NASDAQ has uh, been under more pressure and in a different spot in a lot of investors' minds uh, in, uh, in the last month or so. Ankar also has an incredibly impressive background, uh, uh, and among other things, uh, in 2020, she was recognized as uh, a top woman in asset management by Money Management Executive. Um, she has a Bachelor of Science in uh, Mechanical Engineering and Materials from the University of California, Berkeley, uh, an MS and a PhD in Materials Science and Engineering from Stanford. Uh, so uh, she also has uh, an outstanding uh, background uh, from an educational standpoint. She's also been awarded a fellowship from the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, and she holds a number of U.S. patents. Just to uh, finish the, uh, 
the thought there. And then uh, Nick Davidoff, uh, again, a lifetime investor. Uh, Nick's expertise and focus is in emerging markets, and he's been there for a long time. Uh, he's uh, the founder and chief investment officer today of Entrada Management. Uh, but uh, before uh, uh, starting that uh, firm in 2013, he was a partner and portfolio manager of Firebird Management. Among other things, Firebird was incepted, Nick's word, in 1994 as the first portfolio manager in Russian equities following the collapse of the USSR. Uh, so that you want experience and history in emerging markets, you've got it right there. Um, Nick's also worked at Ronin Capital. Uh, and in a world uh, where U.S. GDP, I was looking at this before we came on, uh, post-World War II, U.S. GDP, 1950-1960, was 40% plus. It's, uh, depending upon how you measure it today, uh, in the low 20s. Obviously, there's China, but there's many other uh, markets around the world that are relevant uh, and having the emerging markets perspective from Nick here today is terrific. So those are our three guests, uh, uh, terrifically well-placed to counsel uh, all the Rockefeller listeners today. So I, I wanted to start um, with a more uh, general question for all three of you, and then we're going to move around, and I'm not going to ask everybody uh, ev all the same questions. But just if we start, and Avery, we'll start with you. Um, uh, if you just want to talk a little bit more generically about the current market environment and the drivers you're focused on most day to day, then we'll go to Anker and Nick, and they obviously, given uh, the different perspectives you all bring, might be focused on other things. So why don't we start with you, current market, and when Avery Sheffield wakes up at a very early hour, what are you focused on? Thanks so much, Greg, and really a pleasure to be here. Uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean, this is a very exciting time for us um, because we think the market is not properly pricing in um, both the risks and the opportunities that we're seeing in the companies and industries that, you know, that we follow. I, you know, as you mentioned, like there are a lot of cross currents um, that we think are creating underappreciated winners and losers. And I'll give you some of the examples, like some of the dynamics that that I am thinking about um, in the middle of the night, we're just thinking in the morning and all through the day. Um, so of course, like, like everyone else, thinking about inflation, you know, is it temporary or will it stick? Actually, my take is that it's gonna last longer than people anticipate because wages tend to be sticky. Um, and commodities like food and energy have structural supply dynamics that could lead them to stay higher for longer. There might be volatility along the way, but potentially higher for longer um, than commodities like lumber, you know, which has had a relatively fast supply response. Um, we're also, you know, I do a lot of work in the consumer sector and so very focused on supply chain disruptions. And of course, we've been hearing about these temporary supply chain disruptions for nearly a year now, um, and they seem to be continuing uh, well into next year um, on forecasted by the companies themselves. And my take is that these supply chain disruptions have the potential to lead to short-term oversupply in some sectors, like semiconductors, as it resolves, but actually potentially tighter inventory longer term in sectors like apparel that have benefited significantly from tighter inventory over the past 18 months after having been historically plagued by deflation driven by high inventory levels in the past. And I think this is something that people really aren't thinking about or talking about very much. There's also the domestic political situation. Um, we think the market is largely ignoring risks from you know, $29 trillion plus of debt, expected corporate tax increases. We are likely to be impacting companies for the first time in five years. Um, infrastructure spending that might take longer to play out than investors expect and the easing, of course, of, of COVID-related government transfers. 
And then, of course, there's the interest rate dynamic and Fed policy that I'll let my colleagues talk about. Um, but of course, they're always on my mind. Um, and geopolitically, you know, we are really uh, looking at the, you know, the, the real estate debt crisis in China as a potential major headwind, um, both to near term and longer term global growth. This hits companies potentially in the or might impact companies in the consumer sector as well as others. And also, you know, the tensions with Taiwan, though, for, from a positive perspective for the United States, if it's just tension and that's it, um, it has the potential to lead to more onshoring of the semiconductor industry here, which could potentially drive our own domestic growth, you know, over the years ahead. Um, so this is all, of course, within the context of the market trading near all-time highs, um, comping the COVID dynamics of the past couple years. Um, I really like this setup because I think the markets can be a lot more choppy moving forward. And as a fundamental base stock picker, um, I think that fundamentals will be much more important. I, I think we're really entering a great stock picker's market. That's terrific, Avery. And it's a great transition to uh, Anker because um, uh, even though uh, she's more in the growth space, uh, she sees it. Uh, and uh, I'll let you uh, run with this theme, Anker. And, and Anker and Nick, uh, for our uh, clients and, and colleagues, are on audio here. Uh, a bit of a supply chain disruption on uh, on the call. Uh, but Anker, um, <laughs> one of the things that uh, you're very focused on, uh, to Avery's point about volatility in a stock picker's market. Uh, in the growth space, which you still, uh, you know, spend a lot of time in, and, and you're a, continue to be a buyer of innovation and its impact on different companies, and and therefore uh, companies that you think have significant price appreciation ahead, you see that bifurcating more now. Uh, so, can you talk a little bit about all of that in the in the growth space and in the things that you're seeing? Sure. So. Um... You know, as, as you know, we, we are growth investors and we think we are in the probably the most innovative time of our generation. Um, you know, so some refer to it as Industrial Revolution 4.0. Um, we are in an in a era of accelerating innovation and the disruption that we're seeing throughout the market has been unparalleled really in, in the last 40, 50 years. So we actually think I, I, I we think about the same things that Avery mentioned in terms of um, the dynamics in the market um, with supply chain disruptions, but we think that's that's kind of shorter term in nature. Um, the disruption that we're seeing across tech, across industries, um, in in those businesses that are adapting and adopting um, technology and digitizing, is is really unparalleled and. Um, can change and alter business models in, in a way that we think is completely unappreciated. And so, you know, people are always asking me, is this a bubble? Is this a bubble? And, you know, what about the valuations? You know, if, if we want to look at the last month, uh, last, you know, the, the, this period of volatility, we do think that there is a bifurcation in, you know, some of the, um, the, the companies we think have duration. And, um, and duration to both the earnings power, the operating margins, the growth, versus those that kind of went up because the group went up and because the sentiment was was frothier. So I, I wholeheartedly agree with with Avery that there is going to be next year is going to be a stock pickers market, and you really have to understand and and know the fundamentals. Um, you know there may not be as much room for multiple expansion. And so the earnings power and the earnings growth is going to have to carry the stocks. But, you know, we actually see a lot of different opportunities right now, especially on this pullback of businesses that 
have been um, have been kind of thrown out like the baby with the bathwater in terms of like people are worried about the, the inflation effect and um, effect on high growth multiples, but in fact, they they warranted the kind of multiples that they were getting. That's great. And I'm going to come back. I know one of the things that you look at is the ability of a growth company to sustain uh, and achieve, achieve and sustain operating margins. And do they therefore deserve the terminal multiple? But we'll come back on that. Let's uh, let's pull Nick in. And uh, Nick, um, given your history and expertise in the emerging market space and uh, really uh, starting with China, there is a bit of a uh, misnomer in 2020. It's a you know, 15% of world GDP or something. But can we start, because uh, you have so much expertise here on China and, and how you see, I mean, Avery, who's, uh, you know, in, investing, you know, from a more of a U.S. framework, still mentions China and, and the real estate risk there. So can you talk a little bit about where China is and uh, how that's going to play as far as you uh, uh, can tell both there, but the impact on the uh, on the global economy and therefore markets? Sure. Uh, thanks very much, Greg. Uh, so I think that absolutely the most important driver uh, for the markets um, in, in the fourth quarter into next year is this intersection between sort of broadly inflation and slowing growth. Um, the, the setup is, is really incrementally tightening policy in the developed world uh, versus a China that's being forced into easing policy. And as you said uh, earlier in the call, you know, given the size of China's, you know, China relative to the rest of the world at this point, its impact is really more outsized than at any time in living memory. So getting China right is just really, really important to any investment process right now. And simultaneous to that, we have uh, really a Chinese Communist Party that's grown kind of ever more insular, uh, which complicates making forecasts and, and really actually may be fooling the markets into a false sense of security, kind of similar to what we saw in early 2020 with the virus. Um, so if we put China aside for a second, I think the other thing that's just really, really important and, and fundamental to the case here in the fourth quarter is the breaking linkage between fiscal and monetary policy in the United States. So for the first time since the pandemic began, you know, the Fed's basically being scared into tightening um, by these inflation prints, uh, which, we, which we saw this morning. And it's simultaneously combining with these forces that are that are kind of limiting the the, the Biden fiscal agenda, so to speak. Um, and you know, just just getting back to China for a second, I, I think the, the the best way to describe the opportunity set right now is that you really in in emerging market land, you want to be long uh, what China's short. So so this is specifically food and energy commodities. Uh, China uh, imports really almost everything that it consumes in the food and energy space. Uh, and, you know, people have been reading about these, you know, major power shortages recently um, and thinking that it's all down to supply shocks. Uh, that has certainly had a lot to do with it, particularly the trade war with Australia uh, over coal. Um, but it's, it's actually, interestingly, really a demand story. Uh, electricity demand right now in China is booming. Uh, one interesting uh, data point that I saw was that uh, industrial energy demand by kilowatt hours running at double digit percentages above trend for really all of 2021, um, given these export demands um, on China from the world. So this is just to put it in perspective, about 25% higher uh, than Trump's first year in office. So there's been an, really a lot of growth, but when we get back to the import story, you know, food and energy production is constrained by labor shortages, you know, shipping, regulatory restrictions, all the things you're reading about globally. Um, and this affects China really more than any other country in the world. Um, so to, to sum up potentially, 
China uh, printed a PPI uh, 10% uh, in the last month, and, and we think that that could grow uh, much further from here uh, before this is finished. Um, so we think the ultimate place that this goes is for China to get commodity prices down uh, via slowing growth, and, and we can talk about the implications of that with the housing market and otherwise. That's great. And yeah, let's definitely come back to the implications. Also, the implications of that uh, in terms of, you know, the, the Chinese people. And, you know, for years, the notion was they, the government had to keep growth at 6 or 7%. Uh, it was part of the deal of what they were offering. And if they bring it down a lot, we can we can get to that. But let's circle back, Avery, on the heels of, of uh, what Nick's talking about in China, which creates a more complicated picture uh, for global growth and for the U.S., one of the things that you uh, uh, really, uh, I'd say, called uh, well uh, a year ago um, was the return to work and, and uh, what was going to happen as things started to reopen. Where are we on that uh, topic today? Is you know more and more countries uh, in the Western world seem to be treating the the pandemic and the virus as if it's it's you know yesterday's news and they're opening up and just starting to function. So where are we on the on the pandemic, the impact on growth, the impact on behavior, back to work. You know, you, you've got a lot of expertise on those topics and it's its its uh, fed through to stocks you've picked and then also stocks you don't like. So where are we on those topics? Yes, yeah, certainly. You know, what's interesting about combing COVID is, you know, it, we're almost a year um, going to have the year anniversary, right, of the, of the approval um, of the first COVID vaccine here in the United States. And at that moment in time, you could kind of, it didn't take too much creativity to think that all the dynamics that had been happening over the past six months were potentially going to reverse at some point um, in the future. And certainly by earlier this year, uh, that was the case. And yet we actually still have yet to see um, those dynamics fully reflected in a lot of stock prices. So in terms of where we are in, you know, in comping COVID, um, you know, clearly it, what's one thing that's fascinating to me is, you know, New York City supposedly doesn't have any tourism back, but we were trying to get reservations for dinner on a Saturday night, kind of last minute, um, a couple weeks ago, and we, we literally could not find a restaurant that could seat us before eight o'clock. We were calling it like four o'clock in the afternoon. So, so much for, um, so much for, for New York City and, and kind of perpetual decline post-COVID. Look, I, what, what's, what's I think most interesting from kind of a stock perspective is you still have a lot of COVID beneficiaries um, that are still pretty, pretty highly valued um, and or at levels well above um, pre-COVID levels that, that don't look like they've had real structural shifts to the industry um, or had one-time benefits. So for example, companies that really benefited from work from home, from the movement to work from home, right? From the furnishing um, uh, dynamics that happened during that time, kind of crafting and, and other areas that were very COVID specific. So those are, those are places where, you know, we wouldn't be as constructive. Of course, we run long shorts. So we have the ability to hedge things. On the opposite side, you know, there um, we are. We are seeing. We are still not, you know, fully there with things like apparel, shoes, um, uh, kind of things that are that are part of getting back. It's certainly travel and uh, uh, restaurants have like. Are, are coming back quite strongly and those stocks are appreciating that. But, you know, there, there are still areas um, that, that, that where investors are kind of skeptical about 
um, underlying, you know, dynamics of the industries um, that they're like the apparel industry is one that's been beaten up a lot. And so people think like, oh, people have just started to buy apparel and next year there's going to be a recession. And of course, they're not going to buy apparel, even though they didn't buy for 18 months. And of course, these companies never could have improved. That's a place we find a lot of opportunity. So, um, you know, more from a kind of human humanistic standpoint, we, we do think that kind of work from home um, with, with at least more flexibility towards work from home is likely here to stay. Um, that might lead to that um, might lead to, to more eating from home than in the past, not not at the levels we saw during COVID. Um, and that's hopefully will lead to healthier lives um, for, from everyone. But I think while um, I think we're very much in a stock pickers market, uh, the, the, the comping COVID is still alive and well. We have not gotten to kind of a normalized environment and is still presenting um, quite interesting opportunities, both long and short. That's uh, really interesting. And and I have to say, from a personal standpoint, I was flying back. I was visiting our colleagues in Boca Raton yesterday. I'm flying back from Miami last night, and every single flight to New York was sold out. So, and, you know, the airport was crowded. And there were, so, you know, the, 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 the snapback has occurred in some places, but not in others, as you said. I mean, New York restaurants, another example. So, uh, I do think that probably presents places that you're still going to like, and then things where the snapbacks already occurred. Um, so, Ankur, if we come back to you on, the, on a similar theme uh, and just expand a little on the bifurcation of growth and technology, which I can tell you a lot of the, our private wealth advisors listening will find that fascinating uh, because uh, it's, as you said, it's pretty much been a good ride in tech land almost everywhere uh, from the, the low point last March. Um, how do you think about uh, which uh, companies and spaces uh, you like best? And you mentioned... Um, uh, looking for companies where they either have or can achieve an operating margin and hold it. And therefore, when you're running a discounted cash flow or something, the terminal value will be there. And therefore, this thing might actually be a five or a 10, you know, multiple growth company. You know, uh, can you talk a little bit about your, your framework and how you see uh, companies in one bucket or, in, you know, sectors in one bucket versus another? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, when when we look at businesses, we kind of are we we look out three to five years to really understand how the business is going to evolve from here. Because looking at at any business over a one year time for, period is um, it's a bit of a misnomer because you know people will be like, oh well, you can put a peg on it, but what is peg if it's only growing for one year? So we really like to to understand um, where a business is evolving to and and how it is. What, what the structural margins of a of any business are going to be. And in, in part because the structural margin of a business or the operating margin and where it rests is a function of the competitive dynamic in that market. So as we look out and, and we can take a smattering of, of growth companies today, and, and I think Avery, you mentioned like furnishing. So, you know, if you have an online furniture um, uh, company, well, you know, one has to question, you know, the, they, they may have over-earned through COVID. And a lot of these businesses may have over-earned through COVID. At, at the structural level of demand, and as you normalize demand, can they continue to earn operating profits at that same level um, on, a, on a revenue basis, on a, in a per unit volume basis? And we think that the market is really starting to suss out those businesses that have duration to that operating margin, i.e. sustainable profits that will continue to grow versus those that were effectively over-earning. 
And obviously, we avoid we avoid those businesses that we think are over earning in part because the earnings power is just a lot lower than than is what is in um, in street models today. So, but you know, th this concept of of the bifurcation of what we're seeing in the market today, I think it is it is the market understanding that um, there are structurally benefited business from COVID where we've seen an acceleration in, in the adoption of technology and the acceleration in the adoption of um, digitization. And um, some of those businesses, they're going to continue to, to generate gobs of free cash flow. And when I look across the space, despite some of the moves, when I look at companies that can generate a 5% free cash flow yield or a 7% free cash flow yield over the next three and seven years, um, three to five years, I, I think that that is just mispriced still in the market, despite the moves that they've had. So again, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree that this is going to be a stock pickers market. It is really exciting because um, you're getting growth and you're getting valuation at the same time. And even if they look really kind of um, unpalatable on valuation today, if you look out just a few years, um, you'll really see how they blossom into businesses that are really, um, I would say, kind of garpy versus um, high high growth or high valuation. That's terrific. I mean, that's very insightful. I mean, I have to say, you, you do sound excited about it. To, to me, uh, your craft would be gut-wrenching, waiting for the, or watching these companies grow into GARP from, you know, uh, valuations that are more uh, aggressive uh, in a current environment. But uh, I think that sounds spot on. And, you know, one of the things that all three of you are, are clearly focused on uh, and, and Nick has a real perspective on is Fed uh, and Powell's potential reappointment and the impact uh, of that on markets and and uh, and Fed action. So Nick, why don't you take the first crack at Fed and uh, Ankur and Avery, if you want to add anything on Fed, uh, we, we can do that. Sure. Thanks, Greg. So I, I think that um, you know, pretty short and sweet. Uh, Powell's going to be reappointed. Um, the markets are effectively pricing that. You can see all kinds of different um, predictions um, from the street and, and even on some of the different um, odds-making sites on, on whether or not Powell will be reappointed. I, we certainly think he will be. The reason is that there, there's absolutely no way that the Biden administration can risk some kind of a confirmation battle uh, over a new Fed chairman, uh, whether that's Brainerd or Bostic or, or any of the names that have been mentioned. It's just too risky. Uh, what I think is going to come as a surprise after Powell's reappointment uh, is how quickly the markets adjust. So right now, um, really, you know, since the pandemic began, uh, the the U.S. markets and global markets, I guess, more broadly, have have really loved Powell. Uh, he he's been delivering everything uh, that the market could ask for from the perspective of the Fed balance sheet and 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 forward guidance. And what I think may come as a surprise is, is how quickly that adjusts kind of back to the, um, you know, when Trump appointed Powell in, in fall of 2017 into his confirmation in 2018, we immediately stepped into that um, February VIX event, um, which, was, which was really dramatic for the market and, and, um, and, and happened, I would say, relatively unexpectedly for most people. Um, I'll just add uh, as well, you know, this is all all happening in the context of this this major infighting that's going on um, in Congress over the spending package, and 
it, none of this is resolved yet. Um, certainly, the debt ceiling was was kicked out to December. Uh, I don't think that's been resolved yet. Um, and then certainly, just the the you know the, the the proposals that the Democratic Party is trying to decide on amongst themselves uh, are still being hashed out. So, I think the power reappointment is 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 just just a very important event that um, people are not paying enough attention to. Good. Okay. Uh, Avery and Unker, uh, you can add on Fed, but from a, let's add fiscal to that. From a market standpoint, we have the trillion dollars of infrastructure, and then we have, um, uh, you know, the, the policy that the Democrats are, the, uh, the social package Democrats are now debating. From a market standpoint, does it really matter where they end up? Right. Or I, I can comment if, yeah, please, you go, and then we'll get okay. uh, Anker to jump in. Okay, yeah, so, um, well, I think kind of, I'll comment more on fiscal. I'll leave the Fed and Powell to, to Nick and to Greg and to, to any other experts, Fed, Fed watchers. But from a fiscal perspective, I think what's, you know, what what I think about on a daily basis is what's being proposed, um, the budget, for, you know, the multi-year budget, is dramatically lower than the stimulus that we've seen over the past couple of years. So we don't have anything on the table that comes anywhere near to the spending that we're lapping. And so again, as someone in a lot of that spending went directly into the hands of consumers um, and small businesses. And you know, that is certainly a headwind um, ahead. Now, the good news is that consumers saved a lot of this, um, either through paying down, you know, credit and in fact, uh, saved it through paying down um, a credit card and, and, and other debt um, or through through actually saving it. And so we there is more of a cushion than we've seen. And the, the other positive offset is, is the, again, the very strong labor market and wage growth. Um, so I think there's the there's the potential for kind of the headwind from lack of stimulus to be less of an effect um, than the market might be pricing into some stocks, especially those of lower income individuals who have ample employment opportunities uh, next year and people are just assuming are gonna have nothing to spend. That said, um, you know, we're very focused on finding those companies that have idiosyncratic, idiosyncratic company specific factors that should allow them to do well, even, even potentially in a spending environment that's more pulled back. Now, I'm not um, an expert on infrastructure. I do look at the space. I do invest in the space where um, we see, you know, um, clear, hopefully clear opportunities. Um, one, you know, I was just speaking to, to kind of a real, I'd say an expert in the space who was dimensioning to me that, you know, the infrastructure spending we're talking about on an annual basis is kind of like a 10% increase um, to a non-residential spend annually. And you do have the prices of some infrastructure stocks um, that are heavily levered to, to this type of spending up in far in excess of what a 10% annual, you know, a 10% increase kind of holding uh, for five years would imply. And so I think we might, from a stock perspective, be in a sell the news dynamic for some infrastructure related stocks. But I would certainly defer to Anker and, um, and, and to Nick if they had some other thoughts related to infrastructure, especially in particular. Yeah, Anker, let's go to uh, infrastructure, but you can also comment on uh, Fed, fiscal, uh, and, and also Avery threw something out earlier, and Nick, I'll come back to you for this as well. 29 trillion of, uh, of federal debt, higher rates. I mean, is that something that, that you all think about and uh, the market should worry about? So Ankar, over to you. Yeah, so look, absolutely, we think about higher rates because it does it does change the, the, the valuation framework that we, we have to deploy. Um, and so, you know, that said, I, I do think that even though we are in an 
inflationary environment right now, the question is where do we what what is our end point for that inflation? And if you look, I mean, right now we have we're, we're lapping kind of easier comps, and we we have these what I what I do think are transitory um, to some extent. Um, I, I don't think we're we're in a runaway inflation type environment, and um, in part I think that it, it we will have high inflation over the next probably four three to four quarters, um, and as we lap that. Um, we'll go back to a more normalized environment as our growth also starts to normalize. Um, that said, I, I, you know, we have been really focused on on how the consumer is going to spend, given that it's 66% of our GDP, and with five trillion dollars in savings, um, you know, the mid to high end consumer we think are are faring better than they have ever fared before. Um, the savings rate, most of that five trillion dollars is actually in the hands of the top. I think 60% of Americans. Um, the bottom, the bottom 40%, we we think struggle over over the next year um, as they have to normalize back to kind of weaning themselves off of off of the the stimulus that they got. Um, you know, so we we actually think that the consumer market is also going to be quite bifurcated next year, and you have to be careful where you're fishing because of that dynamic. Um, you asked so many questions. I, I don't know if I'm going to get to them all correct, but the um, you know just on the, on the infrastructure, one of the one of the places that we have been focused in on is the renewables, in part because um, clearly, you know whether or not you believe in, in in global warming and the the need for for renewables as part of our energy infrastructure is is quite clear, and um, these are kind of End markets that, despite the economic growth, will will likely be subsidized and grow regardless. So um, demand is only being um, constrained by supply dynamics right now. Um, that the consumer again is feeling quite quite flush, and with with housing prices where they are, you know, the the idea of putting on renewables, putting renewables onto your home or solar into your home, is actually quite compelling. For for a lot of Americans, so you know that is that is one aspect of the infrastructure bill that we've been focused on, and and um, how they're going to support that industry. Um, and I forget, uh, is, is there anything else you want me to touch on? No, let me take that. I want to go back to Avery uh, because renewables is a space that uh, she spends a lot of time on as well. Anything you want to add on the renewables and that part of infrastructure, Avery, and, and market dynamics to what Ankar just said? Yeah, so the only thing that that I would add is kind of going 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 back to the China dynamics. Uh, you know, it, China has has of course been dumping solar kind of into the global market, and you know our country's uh, a focus on on kind of the inhumane treatment um, of the Uyghur population in China, of course, has has led to um, to you know some some meaningful um, restrictions or such tariffs, you know, on the, those those supplies. Um, and that really opens up opportunity for U.S.-based companies that, yeah, that, that opens up opportunities for U.S.-based companies um, in the solar space that, you know, really um, were considered to potentially be, 
uh, obliterated in the future by by Chinese dumping um, in the solar industry. So we very much also um, do see uh, are very optimistic about the future of renewables here and abroad. And what's really interesting about solar in particular is because this China dynamic was such a headwind, you can actually find companies with really reasonable valuations with great technology um, that are harder to find in some of the other areas in renewables right now. That's uh, fascinating. Uh, uh, and, and I'll transition back to Nick on China and, and change it a little, Nick. Uh, you were talking about this before, uh, slower rate of growth uh, there uh, and other places around the world. Can, can the Chinese government afford the growth rates to fall to, I don't know, two, three, four percent? I mean, how's that going to play out? Uh, and, and will that uh, lead the, the government to pull back a little on some of the regulation they've been putting on? Uh, our uh, colleague, Jimmy Chang, uh, does a lot of research on, on, and a lot of thinking on this topic as well. So uh, what do you think, Nick? So uh, I, I think that right now the, the most important element um, of, of Chinese growth is really what they're, what they're consuming vis-a-vis -vis the real estate market. The real estate market in terms of broad numbers um, is, is this sort of $52 trillion valuation, which is double the U.S. and, the, you know, against a GDP that's 75% of the U.S. And Ken Rogoff has done some fantastic work where he estimates really a third of Chinese GDP is related to industries directly servicing the real estate market in some capacity. So it's, you know, the interlinkages associated with this huge build-out. So what you have is, is China you know, as a marginal buyer of almost every industrial commodity in the world, uh, consumes 75% of global iron ore production, over 50% of copper production. And this has kind of come to dominate, you know, emerging markets investing generally, you know, in terms of the, the, the different countries and, and industries that service that demand. But when you look at what it's resulted in, home ownership is really the only asset class in China um, for the middle class. There's a deep, deep distrust of bonds, equities, banks, uh, and real estate is, is, is thought to be, I mean, this is not a, a, um, a hard number, but it's thought to be about 70% of assets broadly uh, in the country. And that's held against this, this debt to GDP ratio of 60%, which is really quite high in comparison to the rest of the world. So you have this sort of saturated home ownership rate. Um, we've read that it's as high as 90% among urban households. Um, we also saw a study uh, that said that some 90% of new home buyers um, in 2018 already had uh, one uh, dwelling in their pockets already. So the, what you see is, is you know, we, we've seen this sort of phenomenon of, of ghost cities in China, you know, massive vacancy rates. Um, broadly, it's measured at 21%, but it's actually over 40% for these families that own more than two properties. And when you come back to the consumer leverage ratio that's held against all of these assets, the bottom line is if home prices stagnate, let alone drop, the entire edifice, you know, holding up this, this consumption story, which I, I would argue was one of the most consensus trades um, over the summer, you know, basically the Chinese consumer leading the world. Um, I, I think it's going to be just, just very challenging. And, you know, uh, a great example, and, and Avery could probably elaborate more on this, would be some of the, uh, the luxury companies, you know, the, the LVMHs of the world, um, that are really just, just solely dependent on the Chinese consumer for their growth. Um, and I could just suggest, you know, uh, you know, a couple of different, you know, macro uh, trades that, that people could think about in this context before I, I pass it back 
over to you, Greg. Um, you know, one is 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 the copper market in particular. Uh, if you broadly measure, you know, what China consumes, it's about 10 million metric tons of copper annually versus the U.S. at 1.8 million metric tons. That's about 16 pounds of copper per person versus about 12 in the U.S. And if you if you kind of look at the iron ore market as a barometer, the iron ore market has collapsed. Um, it's down over 50%. It happened in uh, a couple of months, uh, starting in August. And why is copper still so high? Um, people could point to supply restrictions in Peru and Chile, who are large producers. They had they had big uh, sort of government changes that could have restricted some supply. Um, there's also a lot of exuberance around electric vehicles and the you know the general ESG space holding up demand. Um, but back to that per-person calculation, if China were to just reduce its copper demand to a developed market norm, not an emerging market norm, a developed market norm, it would reduce, you know, uh, per, uh, on a percentage basis, global copper demand by double digits, which would be absolutely unprecedented in history, right? So even the most optimistic, you know, electrical vehicle replacing the entire grid kind of build-out scenarios we could only see that demand being filled in um, in five years um, ver versus whatever some kind of a, 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 a short reduction, a small reduction in Chinese demand would look like. Um, so uh, that, that's uh, what we're playing. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, uh, that's a fascinating analysis. Uh, Avery, I'm going to come to you because both Nick and Ankur teed you up here. Ankur said uh, you have $5 trillion of savings, and a lot of that is concentrated on people who might be more in the luxury good market. Uh, and then next up, oh, wait a minute, uh, the Chinese may be pulling back there. So how does that play out for, for markets like that? No, it's a good, it's a great question. Um, we well, you know for luxury in particular, kind of to Nick's point, uh, China has been like, I don't know, you say over uh, probably 100%, nearly 100% of the incremental growth for luxury companies over probably the past five years. Um, so if China were to stall, if nothing else, you 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 take out a growth driver. Um, if China were to decline, um, that would be um, hard to offset by the continued strength elsewhere in the world. It's just it's it's between you know direct Chinese consumption, which before COVID happened in. Um, China, but also Japan, uh, Europe, and Asia, and the United States through tourism. Um, you have between 30 to sometimes over 50% of luxury good consumption of certain of different companies coming from Chinese buyers. And so any weakness in there, it's like China sneezes, I think the, the luxury market, uh, you know, has has a, a, a bad a bad cold. Um, uh, and but 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 speaking kind of to companies that would be more, I mean, most most companies that we're involved in do have some um, Chinese, uh, you know, Chinese exposure. Uh, I'm not sorry, domestic retailers don't, but most most global brands um, uh, that that serve the middle and, and higher income do. Um, but just like thinking about the U.S. consumer, I do agree that it does seem like the middle to the higher income consumer in the United States next year um, should do better or should like. Has has again more flexibility um, to spend again, uh, it, but how you play that is 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 a little harder because again the luxury names are like exposed globally, um, and if you're a little bearish on China, those might not be as good um, companies to own. I think where you would probably go, um, and then this is a place that we're that we are exposed and looking at is we've been looking at kind of like 
those mid-tier to kind of aspirational luxury brands um, that might even have some China presence, but uh, but could be kind of uh, but are are more um, more mainstream, so should should be less impacted, and will continue to have strength here in the U.S. Um, and and should have strength here in the U.S. and Europe. And again, are these kind of company-specific kind of turnaround stories, companies that that ran with too much inventory that didn't have enough innovation, um, didn't have as effective marketing before COVID, have really improved themselves, are still trading at really cheap valuations. And so even if there's some softness in China, you can make it up by the company-specific factors as well as strength in, your, in Europe and, um, and the US. And then I would say though, you know, for the low-income con consumer, um, while we're, as I mentioned, cautious, I mean, we completely agree with Anker, uh, there are, again, in that space, there are companies that have company-specific improvements um, that are trading, especially right now, after everyone's really concerned about what's going to happen next year, as if earnings are going to, like, implode, and, and people are completely ignoring um, their dynamics and their ability to be continue to be meaningful share gainers, even potentially against a backdrop of a weaker consumer, and also experience trade down um, from potentially, you know, those those more middle income who also had some stimulus who still want to have good things but get them at a cheaper price. So again, it, but it's very company specific and idiosyncratic, and we're we're not making bets, you know, across the board in any one sector, in, in, you know, in particular. Well, I mean that is a theme uh, that that's coming across for you and Anker and Nick. Uh, uh, you know, so it is it is moving to a stock pickers uh, world. Anker, let's come back to you on the U.S. Uh, innovation machine and technology, and you know uh, the the companies that have uh, continued to uh, to be built and brought to market in the U.S. Um, how does that play? You think over. You know, you mentioned you focused on a three to five year time frame for investing in a company. Uh, but, you know, we have uh, midterm elections next fall. We talked about Fed and fiscal here and all the uncertainty here and in China. In 23 and beyond, uh, will this U.S. innovation machine just keep going? And, and uh, you know, will we continue to, to uh, create companies that, that really uh, uh, dominate some of these uh, leading industries, technology, biotech, pharma, et cetera? Oh my gosh, um, Greg, I, I actually think that over, we are in the beginning really of this in, innovation cycle. And um, I would say like second inning of, of, of the game here. And we still have a long runway for growth. I mean, I'm, I'm working currently on, on a project on, on Web 3.0 and what it means. And what I'm finding is that, you know, companies that disrupted over the last 10 years could be poised to be disrupted over the next 10 years. That is how fast we are innovating in our economy today. And there's a little bit of a, a kind of a compounding effect of innovation. And I think it was Bill Gates that once said that, you know, in the short term, we overestimate the change we'll have. In the long term, we underestimate it. And I feel like the, the market is truly underestimating what we are going to see over the next 10 years. And, um, so for us, that's, that's and, and, you know, U.S. is really the, the, the hotbed of innovation. You see so much innovation occurring here. And it's not that the, the rest of the world doesn't. We have, we have investments globally, um, but majority of our, of our portfolios are focused here. Um, so I, I think we're at the beginning of this. And it's not just about those businesses that are driving the innovation, i.e., you know, software companies or tech companies. It's also those businesses that are adapting and adopting to change. So, 
you know, we, we really segment the market into three different buckets. It's the disrupted, it's the disruptors, but it, there's a wide range of businesses in the middle that are realizing that it's now or never and, or do or die, and they're going to have to adapt or they will not be in existence in 10 years. And this is happening across every single industry. There is not one industry that is not touched by this. I mean, I was, the beginning of this year, I was listening to um, some energy companies and they were like, oh, we're becoming a services business. And, you know, over time we're using AI and digital transformation. And I was like, my gosh, you know, it's even touching these, these staid kind of, um, you know, energy companies that you would never thought think would change. So whether it's healthcare, industrials, there is not one sector that is not touched by this this innovative um, bent because they need to do it because it becomes a competitive edge. So as we look at, oh, sorry, go ahead. I just was going to pile on that, but you know, I, I the metaphor I use, I, I talk about earlier in my career, uh, uh, the you know, technology and the chief information officer and all of that was kind of, maybe they report up to the COO. Technology is driving so much change in every company. It's the heart of every business, every industry, everywhere. And you're talking about, we used to look also at the turnover of companies in the Fortune 500, and you're saying it's going to accelerate. Companies are gonna come and go faster. Is that fair? I, I absolutely agree to that, that, you know, you have to innovate or you will die. And um, because there's someone else that's going to out innovate you, and and take take for example, um, uh, I don't want to name any names, but there there are businesses that through through COVID, their digital the the digital portion of their of their businesses grew 120 percent, and it really saved them from um, you know some of the brick and mortar players, and and the fate of some of the brick and mortar fate players, and they continued to gain share. And they've established this direct-to-consumer business that is, in, it's like a structural imperative to have that kind of connection with your consumer. If you don't have that, um, you're at a, at a structural disadvantage on that operating margin. Yeah, so, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna jump to Nick just on, on, on emerging markets and China. Are, are, where else is that happening, Nick? Uh, this innovation machine, which is, you know, at the heart of the of the uh, the power of the U.S. economy, uh, it, are the Chinese companies keeping up with that, and is that happening in other emerging markets around the world? I would say that the Chinese companies are absolutely keeping up with it, Greg. Uh, the, you know, the question is, uh, at least for me, what's priced in uh, currently to equities. Um, I, I think that the really in thinking about emerging markets broadly as an asset class. The most important, um, you know, uh, I would guess, I would say, innovation that's happened over the last 10 years is really passive investing, and passive flows um, into the sort of EM asset class. Um, at a very high level, passive, you know, picks winners and concentrates flows into these winners. And what you have is really a bucket, um, uh, really a, a less than 10 Chinese tech companies that have grabbed all that, very similar to what's happened in Fang, with Fang in the United States. And then all of a sudden, um, the government you know, changed its mind and for at least for investors who were long these stocks, everything changed uh, earlier this year. And I think that's really important. If you, if you look at the MXEF index, which is what EEM, the largest emerging market ETF is built on, between China and Hong Kong, or Shanghai and Hong Kong, 
it's 33% or a third of the index. And then if you put Taiwan and South Korea on top of that, it's 14% and 12% respectively. So you're looking at 60% of the emerging market index, basically the largest index where, where I would say lots of investors are allocating their capital that is almost solely based on tech. Uh, that is really scary and, and, and really lopsided and different um, to the way that that index looked, um, let's say, in 2008 when, when oil was at you know, 150 bucks and, and, and commodities were dominating. So you know, what I think is going on right now is that, that passive is kind of driving flows, and it's kind of behind markets that are, that are really interesting. I mean, lots of people are focused on India. I, I think India is really, really attractive not as well represented um, in the index. Uh, I also think that from a value perspective, uh, Russia is very interesting. Um, I could point to numerous uh, listed Russian companies, large liquid stocks that have compounded double-digit dividend um, um, over the last five years uh, you know, against some, some reasonable growth rates. Uh, so that, that's sort of the, the way I'm thinking about it broadly. And um, in, in terms of the bond market, um, you know, we're, we're pretty biased to being short duration, and the, the J.P. Morgan bond index has some of the same, you know, features with EMB, uh, the, large, the large bond ETF um, for emerging markets, um, it, basically driving huge, huge demand into the U.S. dollar bond market for emerging markets. Um, what, what, what happens is there's sort of shock reactions in um, – a good example would be Peru, which I mentioned earlier – uh, Peru's a reasonable sized constituent in this market, and the bond market in Peru, uh, for, for at least U.S. dollar bonds, really didn't react that much, or certainly not as much as it should have, given the gravity of the, the election. And I would posit that that was really because of passive flows um, in, into the Peruvian bond market at that time, which were just sort of uh, not paying attention on autopilot and, and, and really should have been. Um, but maybe I'll stop there and, and, and hand it back to you for, for questions. Yeah, that's I'm going to do. Thank you, uh, Nick. I'm going to do a quick uh, lightning round. We started a couple of minutes late, so we can go a couple of minutes over. Uh, two, two topics. One is uh, something uh, dramatic, uh, and it could include nobody 18 months ago thought everything, uh, in, most of the economy could move to Teams, Zoom, whatever, uh, and look at it, look at the impact. Um, and then second, uh, a habit or two that you have as a lifetime investor that keeps you from stressing out when uh, something that looks so logical to you isn't reflected in the market in your numbers. So Avery, uh, we'll do one at a time. So uh, five years from now, something we're going to see that uh, uh, will be fascinating for people and it's going to change the world. Or Right. Well, so this is more just, I think, a continuation of a trend that that, that got a, a lot of um, uh, got a lot of momentum behind it during COVID. Um, I mean, two things, but but first is really um, that I think that there's um, going to continue to be increased support for lower income participants in the economy, both here in the United States and globally, and that has, of course, meaningful implications um, not just for society but for companies generally, um, for prices of commodities, just as as um, as, as, as the improved standard of living goes up around the world and input costs um, for companies that are, you know, for all of us trying to buy, buying things that have depended on really cheap, um, really cheap labor. So um, that's one thing that I think is potentially underappreciated um, a longer term overall. I think positive for, for the world might be a bit inflationary, though. Um, and then the second, but I, I'm not sure Ankur or Nick might 
add more to this um, is that, of course, uh, you know, alternative energy um, is going to continue, I think, to play, uh, you know, an ever increasing role in our lives. And uh, and really excited to see about the changes that that, that um, brings to bear. Um, in terms of, you know, habits that regularly follow, um, you know, I guess one of them is that I really, I wake up every morning um, asking myself, what am I seeing that no one else has seen but is about to see? And if others aren't seeing it yet, you know, it is like to your point, there's some frustration, but I, I get such kind of excitement and delight of when I do see something and others come um, along eventually. That's what really uh, propels me and keeps me going and keeps me really excited, excited to um, excited to invest. And, you know, at this point in time, we are seeing a lot of these dynamics um, and it does feel like on a lot of the themes we're investing in, others might be close or starting just to see them. Um, so it really feels like my portfolio is, right now feels like a cold spring about ready to be unleashed. But of course, uh, you know, life will could always surprise and, and lead to a much more significant delay than I anticipate. But um, but but that kind of delight in in the dynamic of seeing things that others haven't seen yet it really keeps me going. Excellent, that's well said, Ankur. Uh, in uh, sixty seconds, if you would. Yeah, so again, I think, um, you know, the, the full power of IoT, AI, autonomous driving, the metaverse, um, Web 3.0, alternative energy, all of that will truly blossom over the next five years. And we'll see the, the real power being unleashed of, of these um, kind of new technologies. And I think it will surprise everybody how quickly it will change our lives. Um, and your second question, in terms of you know how do you keep how do you keep sane? Um, I meditate, and every morning I wake up and find my center. And oftentimes, when things are not going right, um, you know I take that one breath and realize that we've done a lot of work on the businesses that we own, and we have that quote unquote edge. And sometimes it is a it is just a conceptual edge. And it is as, as Avery said, it is it is incredibly exciting. To, um, to find things that, and, and um, ideas that, you know, that the market hasn't yet realized that where businesses are going to go over the long term. So that, that's, I'm with Avery, that's, that's totally what drives me and um, the conviction level in our work also drives me. Excellent. Uh, Nick, you got the last word, 60 seconds. Uh, 60 seconds. Uh, the way that I sleep at night and, and kind of, uh, uh, I guess, uh, figure out if I'm right or wrong is I, I, I stay liquid. So really keeping my portfolio as liquid as possible allows me to be able to change my mind and stock and you know, uh, really not, not, not lose sleep at night, if, if, uh, if that makes sense. And then other than that, in terms of, you know, personal habits, I, I think it's just all about health. I, you know, <laughs> I try to limit myself to one cup of coffee a day um, and, and really stay as active as possible sitting at a desk um, and, uh, you know, keep it pretty simple. So, Well, you all have been uh, terrific, as I promised our listeners. So uh, thank you to Avery, Anker, and Nick for fascinating uh, insights across the landscape. And uh, it is certainly uh, all of us want to live in interesting times. These are interesting times. And uh, as Ankur said, uh, uh, with the pace of change, they're going to stay right there. Uh, and this bringing people uh, of this uh, talent uh, and experience uh, uh, on our program is part of the service that we provide to our clients who are listening here and our uh, Rockefeller colleagues and our advisors uh, in the whole Rockefeller universe. 
So thank you very much to the three of you. I will, as always, uh, end on a quotation. Uh, Steve Jobs, I've been using this one a little bit lately, and I think it applies uh, very well to Avery, Anker, Nick over many uh, years uh, where they're uh, in, in this business, which is not an easy business. Uh, you have to have the conviction these people have to stay with things when it takes a while for others to see it. Steve Jobs said, quote, be a yardstick of quality. Some people aren't used to an environment where excellence is expected. Uh, and if you're gonna do the job as well as Avery, Anker, and Nick, you're going to need to uh, uh, be a yardstick of quality every day. Uh, we are trying for our clients on the phone to do that everywhere across Rockefeller Capital Management. So we hope you enjoyed this program. We'll continue to bring you uh, programs like this and expertise like this uh, on a regular basis. Uh, thanks again to our guests. Uh, everybody stay well, all the best.